0: 1 Corinthians 16, verses 5 through to the end of the chapter. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while, or even spend the winter, so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now, and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits." But I will stay on at Ephesus until until Pentecost, because a great door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord, just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace, so that he may return to me. I am expecting him along with the brothers." Now about our brother Apollos I strongly urged him to go with you to go to you with the brothers he was quite unwilling to go now but he will go when he has the opportunity be on your guard stand firm in the faith be courageous be strong do everything in love you know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts in Achaia and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labours at it. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus and Achaicus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you. For they have refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you, in Christ Jesus. Amen.
1: Maturity in life in general involves navigating the major milestones of life well. So, we need at some point to learn the the goodness and the reward that comes from hard work. That's an important lesson that you learn as you grow up. We need to learn how to navigate both disappointment and success well. Those are skills that we just need to know in life. And growing up, maturing, involves learning those key skills and applying them to all of life. Well, as we think about the Christian faith this evening, one key thing, one key life skill that we need to learn as Christians is to take God's truth and apply it concretely to the day-to-day matters of life part of what christian maturity is it's it's growing to know who god is and all that he has told us in his word and then apply that in concrete ways day to day now the puritans a couple of centuries ago were real masters at this they were experts at this they loved the truth of god and they loved it deeply but they sought diligently to apply that truth in their lives each and every day. If you go and you read a Puritan sermon, there was at least two parts to it. You would have the first part, which was the explanation of the passage, and then you would have what they called the uses. And what that meant was, here's all the application. And it often went 10, 15 points of application as they had explored the truth and then diligently applied it to their lives. That's what they did. Now, why was that so necessary? Well, it was particularly necessary in the past. They saw the necessity of it because life was so very, very hard on a day-to-day basis. I mean, just think about it. A couple of hundred years ago, the average life expectancy, I didn't check it, but I'm sure it was decades less than it would be today. Modern medicine wasn't what it is today. Healthcare, all those other things weren't around. Infant mortality was a very real thing. It was common for families to, to bury half their infant children. Starvation was a real problem. It didn't have all the agricultural machinery and technology that we know today. Plus, of course, for the Puritans, they know they knew real persecution, didn't they? organized persecution at times they couldn't meet. So that meant that knowing the truth of God and applying it concretely and practically, well, it was just day-to-day life. They had what you might call the muscle memories to do those things each and every day. Now, as we think of ourselves in 2023, almost 2024, in the kindness of God, we live in relative comfort, don't we? In the kindness of God, we live in an age and stage where medicine has made so many advances, our life expectancy is so much longer. And in God's great kindness, infant mortality is such a smaller thing than it was back then. But we still experience hardship, don't we? I think what probably happens, generally speaking, is it comes later, but it comes later. Bigger. That is to say, we all have to face a reality of dying. That is to say, we all have to face a reality of our own death and the death of those we love. Now, for the Puritans and Christians in the past, they faced challenges on a day-to-day level that prepared them for those big things. And I think, therefore, especially as we live in the stage in which we live, in the kindness of God here and now, we need to focus on applying God's word in concrete ways in our lives. And that, friends, is where 1 Corinthians 16 is so very helpful. Because what we're going to see this evening as we look at this passage is that God prepares his people for the challenges of life by giving you and I core convictions. There are core convictions that you need to hold on to as a Christian so that you can face all the different challenges that come right through life and, of course, at the very end of life. They give grounding to your life. They give you stability through the ups and downs. They give you hope and trust and love and joy. And one of those vital core convictions that you and I need is that God is sovereign. God is in control. The Lord God Almighty reigns and he is living and active in our world today. We, we believe in what we call the sovereignty of God. It means that God is there. It means that God is powerful. It means that God is active. It means that God is working in our world. It means that he is in control. It means that there is no moment, there is no second of your existence, there is no place in the whole universe where you could say, God has let his hands off the wheel and no one is driving the car. And that's what we see Paul applying in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. The chapter which you read it at first and you think all kinds of little details, isn't it? And it's just lovely. You hear the the realism of Paul's life and his interactions with these Christians, and he's making plans. He's speaking about personalities. He's saying all kinds of things. And I'm not saying it's the only core conviction which drives everything in this passage. There are other things too. But I think it's helpful to focus on this one and see how it works out in this passage. Because the wonderful thing is that by looking at how Paul speaks and the plans he makes and the way he talks, you get to see what's going on in his heart. It's true, isn't it? If you want to know someone's character, what do you do? You listen and you watch and you know it. And Paul was a man, a Christian man, who lived and breathed God is sovereign. God is in control. So, with the Lord's help, we're going to see Paul do what we all need to do, which is we need to take God's truth and put it to work in our lives. We need to live what God's word teaches practically in the day to day. We need to do, as a Puritan said, see the usefulness of this doctrine that God is in control. So, Our big idea is that we're going to see that we live according to the sovereignty of God when we do five things. As we skim through the chapter, and the first is this. We live according to the sovereignty of God when we hold plans lightly. This is in verses 5 to 7, the opening verses. And there Paul is explaining his travel plans. He explains how he intends to visit Corinth and the church there soon. And it's a lovely reflection, isn't it, of his love for this church, of the way that he holds them in his heart. And so he says, verse five, I will come to you. Middle of the verse. He's not afraid to make plans. God is in control, but he's not gonna do nothing. He's gonna make plans because it's good and right to do that. God calls us to do that. But look at what he says at the start of verse six. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while. Notice the possibility in his language there. And then it says later on in the verse, uh, perhaps I will stay with you for a while or even spend the winter. Not speaking certainly. And then why is he speaking this way? Well, it's because of what he says in verse 7. For I do not want to see you now and only make a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits He holds his travel plans lightly. And Paul does this elsewhere in 1 Corinthians. So if you keep your hands in 1 Corinthians 16 and go back a few chapters to 1 Corinthians 14, you'll read there in verse 19, 1 Corinthians 4, 19. But I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing. Again, that principle Worked out, And if you want an even fuller explanation of this truth, if you jump on again, hold 1 Corinthians 16 open and jump on to the book of James, the book of James later in the New Testament and there in verses 13 through to 15, what does James remind us? He says this, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why do you not even know, sorry, why do you not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Striking there, isn't it, that James reminds us that not only should we think about this in terms of travel plans, we should think about it in terms of our whole existence. Do you see that? If it is the Lord's will, what will happen? We will live. Do you realize that? You live today because God wills it. You breathe another breath and your heart pumps another pump because God in heaven wills it. We think we're the captain of our own lives, the captain of our own soul. We think we're in control, but what does Paul say here and what does James remind us? God is sovereign over the moments of our lives. And let's think a bit more about that. Your life could end tonight if the Lord wills it. You may not wake up in the morning if the Lord wills it. Tonight might be the very last opportunity you have to come and hear God's word. Such is the sovereignty of God and yet he gives you this opportunity. How important it is that we respond in faith and trust and we do not turn away from this God but we trust in Jesus Christ and believe on him because God is in control. We make plans, but we hold them, as some people write, DV, meaning God willing. Now, friends, we say that, we write that, but let me ask you this. Do we live that? Do you live that way? Now, okay, you can say we make our travel plans and we write to people, we look forward to seeing you on Thursday at 2, God willing. Do you make your career plans that way? I hope to progress to this, God willing. Do you make your family plans that way? We're intending to do this or that, God willing. Do you make your life goals that way? There's nothing wrong with having good and godly life goals, but God willing, if the Lord wills. How do you view interruptions to your day. This is a real challenge about whether you believe in the sovereignty of God because you have this plan for the day. You've got 10 things you want to do and because the phone rings and someone comes to the door and the email lands and all this other stuff happens, you get through five. And if you're anything like me, you feel like you failed on the day. (laughs) But we haven't, have we, if God has planned those interruptions? God willing. As we think as a church, we should think in similar ways. You know, there are some churches that make 5 and 10 and 15-year plans with, with what they call specific, measurable goals. Now, it's good to plan. I'm not against planning. But when they're, they're things that really are, are objectives that you might have in the business world, we'll have this many people coming to church, we'll have this many members in the church, we'll, we'll do this or that, well, what are we doing there, friends? We're bringing the world's thinking into the life of the church, and we're not living God-willing. God tells us what we are to do. We are to make plans, but we are to seek to do certain things consistently as a people of God. And we do those things God-willing, and perhaps that should inform some of the bigger long-term plans that sometimes churches make. Now, think about it. Some of the pioneer missionaries that went to the other side of the world... And they gave their lives, some of those ones who went, two or three centuries ago. If they had gone according to a specific measurable set of goals, well, they'd have been brought back after five years, wouldn't they? Or 10 or 15. Their ministry would have been described as a failure. And yet God works sovereignly to save many, often years after they were called home to glory or called home to their home countries, because it's all God-willing. In summary, friends, we should live life like my mother-in-law Liz encouraged Naomi to do early on in married married life. She said, Naomi and Matthew, here's how we've tried to live. We've tried to live all of life with an open hand. We hold it lightly. We don't grasp at it and it's all God willing. We hold plans lightly. That's the first thing. The second thing is, and here's in verses 10 and 11, we give freedom to other believers. Now, Paul in this passage, and if you know Paul's letters, he's always sending people all over, isn't he? And he does that here. He says, Timothy's coming to you. But then if you notice in verse 12, he speaks about Apollos. And there we read, now about our brother Apollos. I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity Notice how Paul sees that. He has strongly urged Apollos to go. He wants him to, do so, wants him to do something, but Apollos is unwilling, and he gives him freedom to live as another believer. Paul doesn't get angry. He doesn't command him that he must go. He knows that Apollos has his reasons, and he knows his reasons not for going and not because of any problem in his heart attitude towards him as a church, because he says he'll go when he can So Paul, and this is key here, Paul does not bind the conscience of Apollos because he believes in the sovereignty of God. As an apostle, he could have done so, you might say, but he won't in this circumstance. Paul is not a control freak. He doesn't need to be because God is sovereign and God is good. God is wise, God is all-knowing, and it is much better that God is in control rather than Paul in control because he's a fallen, sinful man. And one of the things we need to recover at times as God's people is the freedom of the Christian's conscience. Where Scripture does not speak, we should be careful, as Paul is here, to preserve the conscience of the Christian. Now, that can be a danger in all kinds of situations. It can be a danger in, particularly in churches where they believe in ongoing apostolic authority because suddenly you have individuals who call themselves apostles who start binding conscience everywhere because they say, thus says the Lord, and that's very controlling. But we need to watch this as well. Only God, through his word, binds conscience. I was chatting with someone about this this week. And he said about 40 years ago, he was talking to an older Christian who said to him, You must not grow a beard because that's effeminate. Now, why did he say that? He said, Well, it's because you're concerned about your appearance, and that's not for men to do. Now, when I heard that, I said, Well, did he ever brush his hair? Did he ever have a shower? Did he ever clean his teeth? (laughs) We can say all kinds of things, and we need to be careful, friends, don't we? God alone is Lord of the conscience. And so for leaders and those who are called to care for God's flock, we need to be careful that we don't bind conscience beyond the word of God. But there are times when God's word does bind conscience by command or principle and so if we do that, we do that because God's word is binding conscience. And we need to hold this intention because some would say any specific kind of preaching that states that we should believe certain things or from the scriptures or that we should do certain things clearly from the scriptures, well, that's, that's controlling and oppressive, people say today. Friends, if it comes from the mind of the preacher alone, then it, it's wrong. If it comes from the word of God that is not coercive and controlling, because God alone is rightly Lord of the conscience. We also need to take this principle and apply it in our relationships. There is a danger that it can be controlling. We can have friendships where we're controlling our friend inappropriately, as another Christian. It can happen in marriages where we're controlling our spouse inappropriately and wrongly. It can happen in parenting relationships God alone is Lord of the conscience. We need to give freedom to other believers where the word of God does not command or there's not principle for us to apply. But then thirdly, let's see, because God is sovereign, we've seen that Paul makes travel plans lightly. We've seen because God is sovereign over the conscience, Paul gives other believers freedom. But then thirdly, because God is sovereign, we keep going when it's hard. Look down at verses eight and nine. These are... Paul says something here that i would never seen. Um, Maybe he says it elsewhere, but I've not seen it um, as clearly here. Look at verse 8 and 9. He says, but I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has been opened for me and there are many who oppose me. Now, what's interesting there? Well, Paul says there are two reasons why he's staying in Ephesus and he's not yet coming to them and moving on. And the first one is, is because there's a great door to effective work. And you can understand that one. That makes all kinds of sense. But notice the and at the end of verse nine, middle, that last clause, and there are many who oppose me and so I'm going to stay there where they're opposing me. Striking, isn't it? You know, Paul, in chapter 15 and verse 32 describes how he fought wild beasts in Ephesus. Now, I don't think he's describing their real animals. I think he's referring to some of the Ephesians as wild beasts. Tells you something about them and how they were to him, doesn't it? Elsewhere in the scriptures, Paul speaks of how he survived riots and floggings and worse. Now, you could explain the first, I'm going to stay there because it's going well. Who wouldn't? But then the second, I'm going to stay there because it's hard. And you think, whoa, hang on a second what's going on? He's trusting in the sovereignty of God so that he will keep going even when it's hard. The sovereignty of God means I don't stop when there's trouble. Why? Because even though I can't overcome it, God could because he's sovereign. I trust in the sovereignty of God because I know it's not all about me. And I know, therefore, the way that people receive the reception is not definitive about whether God wants me to stay there. In fact, it may indicate that I should stay. I trust in the, co- co- the sovereignty of God, and so I certainly believe that God can preserve me and his people through difficulty. And because I trust in the sovereignty of God, even if I die, that's okay. Why? Because God's plan is far bigger than any one person. He keeps going when it's hard. God can overcome it. And our God is a God who delights to work in the situations where his people know great oppression. He often delights to do that because it shows him glory and it maintains our humility. Now, I had a thought, think this week, and I thought, okay, there are loads of stories about God doing this. And someone talks about God, God's 11th hour rescues, God's just-in-time rescues. And I could quote you some from history, but rather than that, I want you to make the illustration in your mind now. Because every one of us here will have situations where God has moved and acted at the 11th hour. It's looked impossible... God's moved. Think of that situation, friends. Remind you what it shows you of the sovereignty of God. And don't forget, actually, that the presence of opposition is often a good sign. It's a good sign because the devil doesn't oppose fruitless work, does he? The devil opposes fruitful work. I was speaking with someone recently and they were experiencing pressure in ministry and they were knowing blessing as well. And one of the things we reflected on together was that's an indication you should keep going. Let's pray together. It's usually a good sign if you're knowing fruitfulness and you're knowing opposition because the devil doesn't attack something that isn't doing good. Friends, as we think about the Christian life in general more widely, we need to calibrate our expectations for what the Christian life will be like according to the word of God. And so often we think it's just going to be smooth and we're going to cruise and everything's going to be okay. But that's not what the scriptures show. Think of the early church in the book of Acts. What was it like? Great progress. I mean, look, 3,000 saved. 2,000 saved. It's astonishing, isn't it? And then what happens? They get thrown in jail. Great progress, lots of opposition. Here's the application for us today. Prepare for hardship. Yes, in church life, but also in all of life. And learn this truth early. When Naomi and I had just got married, one of the things someone said to us was, prepare for hardship in the Christian life. And I didn't really know what they were talking about. I know more of that now, and some of you know far more than I do. How do you do that? Let me suggest two things. First of all, read Christian biography. It will bless your soul to see God working in other people's lives. And we've forgotten that discipline, I think, generally as Christians. We just don't read very much, and we particularly don't read Christian biography. There's loads of great stuff. Want some suggestions? Come and chat to me or others. Maybe you're not a reader. Listen to talks on Christian history. So much out there right now, isn't there? So easy to do. Put it on in the car on the way to work. Put it on when you're doing the housework at home. Put it on when you're doing something that doesn't require your full attention. So that make sure you've got the full attention. But, but put it on while you're listening. It will bless your soul. Turn off the radio. Put good things on your spiritual life will be strengthened for it. Create muscle memory so that trusting God is something you see in others, you apply in your life, so that, and we spoke about this earlier, when harder things come and bigger challenges come, what do you have? You have the muscles you've built up to face those things. So keep going when it's hard. Fourthly, we'll keep moving. Be... Devoted in service. Here we look at verse 15. Paul's Paul's a great encourager, isn't he? And he loves to commend. But as you notice Paul encouraging and commending others, always know what he commends. And as you look at verse 15, he commends there, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. That's what I want us to see. How are they described? What does he commend? They have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. The King James Version translates it, they had addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. Lovely thought, isn't it? In our world, people get passionate and are devoted to a great number of causes. But you know what? If you observe what happens... People get devoted, and then their interest wanes. And I think there are three broad reasons why that happens. One reason is they think they're serving a perfect leader, and that perfect leader stood up and said, follow me. And everyone says, yeah, we'll follow you because we think you're great. And then they start following that leader, and what do they find? They're flawed, and they get disillusioned. The second thing that happens is they find what they think is a perfect cause. I think, this is it, I'm going to give my life to this cause, and they start giving themselves to it, and then what happens? Well, the cracks start to emerge in the cause, that the plan's not quite as good as they thought, and so they get disillusioned and they lose interest. So it's a bad leader, or it's a bad cause, or well, here's the third thing. They join others to do something, and they find they're working alongside what they think are perfect co-workers. And it's that way for a time, but then what do they find? Well, they find they look around, and other people aren't committed. Other people get things wrong. And they give up. So they've got imperfect leaders, they've got imperfect causes, and they've got uncommitted co-workers, and then people give up. Friends, service in the church is very different. Christianity is very different. Do you know why? Well, we have imperfect human leaders, absolutely. We know that. We have imperfect co-workers None of us here this evening is perfect. But we serve a glorious cause. And we serve a great God. Who is perfect and good in all his ways. That's the sovereignty of God that brings about devotion in service. Now that does not mean, friends, that every initiative will succeed. Events will flop. Beach mission centers will close. Personal contacts may lose interest. Sometimes even churches, folds. And those are all sad things. But the cause of God will always succeed ultimately. I wonder, friends, do you believe that this very evening? Do you? God's word tells you it does. There's a whole book in the Bible that One of the big messages of the book is that very message. It's the book of Revelation. And I think it was Richard Buse whose commentary is entitled, The Lamb Wins for the book of Revelation. That's Christianity. The lamb wins. So it's a great cause. The outcome's not in doubt. He's a great God. It's a privilege to serve him. Imagine you were gathering at the start of a battle and the general who gives you the address to tell you to go and fight says this to you. He says, I want you to give yourselves fully to this fight. I want, to give you, I want you to really be committed to this fight and I cannot promise that we will win every skirmish. I cannot promise that every Little moment of this battle will go our way, but I can promise you this. We will win. Would you fight? I think I would. Would you? I would. And friends, that's what we're committed to as the Lord's people. That's what we're committed to. We have a great general, the Lord Jesus Christ, the God who is sovereign over all things. And he says... The outcome is secure because he's sovereign and so we can be devoted to his service. And so people say, well, my church leaders get things wrong and we do and they give up. People say, well, other Christians, they're doing so little and sometimes we are. But that's not the point. Because if those things make us stop trying and serving in the cause of God, then we've got something wrong. Now, I know there are horrible situations where people get really hurt by things that have just been horrendous. I understand that. But friends, it is a great tragedy, and it is not a biblical mindset when we give up for those kind of reasons ultimately. Because when we do that, we've made it all about us all about man. And we believe in a sovereign God, a great God whose cause will succeed and therefore, because we are devoted to him, we will be devoted to his people in the church and serving his people. Now, I'm so thankful for all the servant-heartedness and all those who are so devoted at Emmanuel. Thank you so much And I know that we have other responsibilities at home and at work and in many other ways. But can I just make a plea? Be devoted to the service of the Lord's people here in God's church. Let me tell you when you really need to do that. You really need to do that when other areas of your life are good And necessary reasons start to get bigger. This is a circle here. Here's my life. It's a circle. And I put right responsibilities and duties within it. And the church is there. It's all under the sovereignty of God. And I'm serving God in it all. But church is part of that. When family life gets more challenging because maybe the family grows or there's responsibilities with parents or other things, that area of that life is growing. When work gets more challenging because we get new responsibilities and we go for promotions and, and we grow in that sense, that area of life is getting bigger and bigger. The thing you have to watch out for really carefully is that your service in the church doesn't shrivel down. Now, I know that's hard. And I know there are seasons when we've got to make adjustments. But be careful that that doesn't happen. Be devoted to God's church. That's the fourth thing. And fifthly and finally, fifthly and finally, we are alert and we have courage. And this is verse 13, where we have, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, and we will come at 14, do everything in love. Now, I think verse 13 is at the minute one of my favorite verses. And if you're allowed favorite verses in scripture, I think verse 13 is one of them. Because it really, really matters for Christians in our day Now, we've spoken about not binding conscience beyond the word of God, but there are four commands in verse 13, and God here is commanding us things. What's he saying? He's saying, be on your guard. Now, in Corinth, what did that mean? That meant that they were not to absorb the morals of the world. They were not to... Get involved with bad company because that would corrupt their good character. They were to watch out for bad theology and teaching. They were to avoid sexuality. They were to run from the eyes of the culture. They were to be on their guard against dangers. The second command is that they are to stand firm in the faith. What does that mean? It means that they are to be immovable on the central core Christian truths. They are not to be a jellyfish. Do you know what a jellyfish is like? No spine. They won't stand on anything. Do not be a jellyfish Christian when it comes to core Christian truth. Have a theological spine. Not inflexible on everything, but where scripture is clear, be like a rock. Stand firm in the faith, but also be courageous. Now other versions have act like men. Now remember, this is a command to all Christians. And so what's going on here is a particular masculine virtue of courage is being commanded to every Christian. And then he says, be strong. Why? Because you have courage. He is calling us to be alert and watchful, to stand firm and be courageous. Now, now, you might be here and say, Matthew, my character is different. I don't feel like I'm a very courageous person. I don't feel like I'm very strong. Well, verse 13 applies to us all, doesn't it, friends? God is commanding us all this evening in this verse. And think of it like this, you know, we all have to climb a hill to be courageous and strong. And for some, the gradient might be harder but all of us are called to climb it. So how do we become strong and courageous and immovable? Well, here's two truths that do it. First of all, the sovereignty of God gives you courage. Stop gaming the problem, trying to get to the outcome that you want to get to by manipulating things, even if it's a good goal. Start trusting God and do what is right and leave the outcome to him. That's how the sovereignty of God gives you courage. But then secondly, friends, not just the sovereignty of God also, the truth of the gospel. Because what have we seen in 1 Corinthians 15? We have seen that Jesus Christ defeated the last enemy. What's the last enemy in 1 Corinthians 15? Death. He destroyed death. It's been swallowed up in victory. So... What's the worst thing that could happen for me if I stand and I have courage on gospel truth? If I must die, I will live because I go to be with the Lord. And those truths that God is sovereign and the gospel is true have sustained Christians for millennia. That's how you play the man, 1 Corinthians 13. That's what Latimer said to Ridley before they went to be burned at the stake on Broad Street in Oxford. He was saying, have courage. And friends, you and I need courage. We need courage because we need to be clear on the clear moral issues. When we're asked to celebrate what doesn't please God, we need to stand firm. We need courage to make the most of gospel openings. When someone says something at work and you think, that's a window, I could, I could speak of the gospel there. We need courage to speak it, don't we? We need courage when a close friend who's a professing Christian starts to compromise in their own lives and beliefs. And we have to ask the question, will I risk what is a precious friendship because something matters more? The truth of God. We need courage. But then lastly, and we close here, in all that we do, we need to do it in love. Verse fourteen. That's the control. We must do it in love. And all the hard things that Paul says to the Corinthians, they're said in love, friends. If in Corinth there was a complaints policy that was active in the life of the church and it was written like many complaints policies are written today, I think Paul would have triggered it hundreds of times. And there'd be this massive pile of complaints that they've got to deal with. Because he's really direct with them, isn't he? He's enormously direct. But, friends, he does that in this wonderful attitude of love. He really loves them, and he says that in verse 24, my love to you all in Christ Jesus. And he loves them not because they are particularly lovable. They cause so much heartache. He loves them because they are united by faith together in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, friends, we need courage with love, grounded in the sovereignty of God. So we've spoken this evening about a core conviction. What was it? That God is sovereign. We've seen how that works out in Paul's life. And my plea to you as we close is this. Is that core conviction central among others, but central to your Christian life? I have a notebook. In the back of every notebook, I write down Four or five core convictions. I'm not showing you what they are. But the sovereignty of God is in there. Is it on your list? Amen.